this coming Sunday, we'll be doing a Father's Day message. I titled it, Quit You Like Men. Going back to the old King James, because I just like the way it sounds. Quit You Like Men. And we'll explain that this coming Sunday, and it's not talking about quitting, but standing strong like men. We need that in our nation today for our fathers and for those men who are not fathers, that we would stand strong for truth and in faith in this nation today. I want to begin by praying for our brother, Spark, his wife, Cindy. She's going home to be with the Lord, and right now their son and daughter and son-in-law are making their way from Tennessee, hoping that they'll be able to arrive in time. So they're due in at 1 a.m. this morning. Hospital's going to break the rules and let them come through to be with mom. And uh, Spark told me he prayed this morning. I just talked to him a few minutes ago, but he told me he prayed this morning that if there's nothing more that can be done for Cindy, let the doctor tell me plainly. And the doctor sat down just uh, about an hour ago and told him plainly that even if she would get through this, she would not get through the ultimate disease that has uh, ravaged her body at this point. So keep Cindy in your prayers. She's still with us. Um, keep sparking your prayers. His children, as they're driving up from Tennessee, uh, they had to go over to get the brother from Nashville, and they have him already. So they're doing it 1 a.m., and we just want to open in prayer for the, this family. Father, we thank you for uh, Carl and Cindy. They mean a lot to our fellowship. And we just pray that you would be with them now. Their need is great, Lord, but we serve a great God. And Cindy has been battling this cancer for over 14 years. And Lord, it seems from the human perspective that her race is coming quickly to a close. So that's where we're at. We also know, Lord, that Carl and Cindy's children are driving up and no doubt anxious, nervous, concerned, making a long road trip from Tennessee. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with them and give them travel mercies, that you would help them to be able to come and be with their mother and sit with her. If it is tonight in their final hours or Tomorrow, whenever, Lord, our days are numbered and in your hands. But I pray that you be with this family. Pray that your comfort be upon them, that your peace would overshadow them, and that they would know your mercy and grace in a great and powerful way. We ask in the name of Jesus. We also ask, Lord, that you would be with us as we look into your word tonight. Help us, Lord, to hear the truth from your word. We're teaching from a portion of scripture that much of our world has rejected as just a fairy tale, something that's been made up. But Lord, we look at it as your truth that was recorded for us, that we might better know you and know the condition of our world that we find ourselves in now. So be with us, Lord. Help us to hear with ears that are willing to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to this church tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So tonight we're looking at Genesis chapters 6 and 7. At this point, I've given up on trying to do three chapters. We'll stick to two, maybe. But we're going to look at a message I titled Finding Grace. I titled it From Chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, we're going to break that down into two sections. So section 1 is chapter 6, Finding Grace. And section 2, Obedience is Key, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. And the Breath of Life, chapter 7, verses 13 through 24. So we got, I'll do my math real quick here. We got 46 verses to get through tonight. And so let's go ahead and get into the Word of God. We're looking at Finding Grace, Genesis chapter 6. Key verse in this chapter to me. You may read through it and pick out some other verse. But to me, Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So in verses 1 through 5, we learn that there was a population explosion upon the earth. In verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply upon the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. There had been a great population explosion since the creation and the subsequent fall of mankind. The result of numerous sin-fallen people caused the morality of the world to become a very dark place. Along with Earth's growth in population came an explosive growth towards the lust of the flesh. It tells us in verse 2 that the sons of God took wives for themselves of the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the children that came from them, the Bible tells us, from their union, the sons of God and the daughters of men, came the mighty men of renown. Nephilim is the Hebrew word used there to describe these men. They were giants, mighty men of renown, Nephilim. And God saw, verse 5, that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And as a result, God set a limit of 120 years that his spirit would continue to strive or abide with man. And at the end of this time, God would destroy this world with the flood. Romans 3.12 gives us a glimpse of this, even in Paul's day, of hearts turning away from God. And I believe we're seeing the evidence of it very similar to the conditions of our own world today. We have a population explosion. We find that there is a great lust of the flesh that's driving mankind, that every intent of the thoughts of the hearts of the people today are evil continually. And Romans 3.12 tells us Paul saw the condition of the world, actually quoting from Psalm, and David then seen this in his day. It's something that's always been, it seems, since the fall. But Romans 3.12, quoting from Psalm 14, and also in 53, it repeats a similar theme. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So we get into these verses, and we have to ask the question, who were the sons of God and 
there are three main answers. I want to go over with you the three main answers of this question. I think early on I went with one that was now I disagree with what I believed initially. Maybe initially I did not envision the realm of the Spirit, both positive and negative, the Holy Spirit versus demonic activities upon the earth, though I believed in both. Perhaps I did not envision the full weight of their influence upon our world when I was a younger man in Christ. And so I fell into line with what the traditional church often taught about the sons of God marrying the daughters of women. And that is traditionally the descendants of Adam through Seth, Seth, that uh, they were intermarrying. So the sons of God, those who followed the godly line, intermarrying with the daughters of common, ordinary people or unbelievers. So you had Christians, we would say today, Christians marrying non-Christians. But there's a flaw with that thought right there. This is what traditional church, those who do not believe in uh, demonic activity in the world often taught. But the first problem you have with this is what about the Nephilim, the men of renown, the giants? How could they come just because a man of God marries a non-Christian woman? It doesn't mean their offspring have giants. It doesn't even make sense if you think about it. And so this is one of the views that they had married the descendants of Adam through Seth. And so the sons of God, those who followed after God marrying the wicked descendants of Cain. The other is that they were either fallen angels or powerful human rulers. And the one that fits the best for me is the fallen angels. Because there was something about this encounter with the sons of God that caused the Nephilim to come upon the earth, caused these mighty men of renown or caused the giants. And this is the word the Hebrew uses for giants. So later on, after Noah's flood and the repopulation of the earth, and when David battles Goliath, Goliath is a Nephilim. He's a giant. He's one of these that seems to have carried on somehow past the flood, not saying that it was regenerated, but think about the different family lines that it was there in the earth, these mighty men of renown, these giants. We even read about them in Scripture. And so it seems that the view that these were fallen angels, demonic spirits perhaps possessing, controlling or taking on the appearance of human form. We can't quite understand that, but we know that Jesus, and so there's some issues even with that. Jesus said in Mark 16, 5, that they can appear in human physical form, but we also learn that Jesus saying that the angels in heaven are not like man. They do not marry or are not given in marriage, so It seems that that has been prevented from them. They don't have offspring. They're created beings of God. Yet the early Hebrew interpreters I'm reading now, 
the apocryphal writings and writings that came after that are unanimous in holding the view that fallen angels are the sons of God, as mentioned in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And so it's still going to be debated, but it seems to make sense only because of the outcome of this union, that there were Nephilim, mighty men of renown. So it either means that they raised up some very powerful people, they called them Nephilim, or these Nephilim, again, Hebrew word for giants, came as a result of that. Whatever the case, in verses 6 through 8, we learn that God was grieved over his creation. He saw, verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Bible tells us that God was both sorry and grieved about the condition of mankind. The Hebrew word that's translated for us as sorry properly means to sigh or to breathe out strongly. If you're a parent, maybe a grandparent, maybe even someone that you have mentored in the faith and you see them do a a very dumb thing. They're walking away from the Lord. A child is walking away from the Lord. And you breathe out this sigh, just this, oh, I can't believe this. That's kind of the sense of this Hebrew word, that God was sorry. He breathed out this sigh to breathe strongly. God was also grieved Translated from the Hebrew, it speaks about feeling a great anguish or pain. And so great was his pain that God pledged to destroy mankind, all of creation, to wipe them from the face of the earth. But verse 8, beautiful verse 8, among all the humanity that had went so far away from God, the Bible tells us in verse 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Peter, recalling this in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood, on the world of the ungodly. That God, he did not, and Peter talking about God bringing another judgment upon this world. At the end of the age, he said, God has done it before. He judged the angels. He cast those fallen demons down into the darkness, holding them in chains. Some believe that, as I was reading about the sons of God and the Nephilim and the daughters of women, they believed that, the reason that we don't see the demonic activity uh, procreating again today is that God punished them and holding them in chains and also giving an example to any other demon who would like to do this, that the outcome will be the pit. The outcome will be this abode where you'll be in chains and darkness until the judgment. But God did not spare the world, but saved Noah one of eight people, Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Though he preached the truth, the world was not saved. But Noah was able to save his family. And that is so important for each of us. We have a world, a country, 
that seems to be coming to that point of beyond salvation. We're going on a course that is going so far away from the truth of God's word that it seems that there's no possible redemption left. Now, we know that the Spirit of God can change the hearts of people, change the leaders in our nations. But even if this does not happen, we have a responsibility for our own family to do our best to preach Christ, not only to those around us outside of our family, but also that our own family might know the truth that can set them free. So verses 9 through 13, again, it's just continuing about Noah. In verse 9, it says, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Just like his great-great-grandfather Enoch had done, Noah walked with God. In verses 10 through 13, we learn of two more things concerning the condition of mankind that resulted in their destruction. First, they were corrupt, and second, they had filled the earth with violence. The Hebrew word translated as corrupt literally means to destroy. Thus, their rebellion against the Lord brought great devastation and ruin upon the planet. And the Hebrew word translated as violence or violence speaks about their unjust, violent dealings toward their pursuit of these worldly gains. They were corrupt and they filled the world with violence. It seems like for the last year plus, we have had our fill with corruption and violence in our land. And yet it seems the violence is it's increasing. It's increasing more and more. The corruption is getting greater and greater. And though many are searching for truth, searching for freedom, searching for a new way in this world, this path, it actually destroys the lives of those who go after these things. Proverbs 119 tells us, So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. So it was. God commanded Noah to make an ark. Verse 14. To make a, yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And God gave the world time to repent. 120 years while his spirit remained upon the earth, while the spirit, verse 3, strived with man upon the earth for 120 years. Noah set about the work of building an ark, an ark that would ultimately save only himself, his family, and two of every kind of the animals that were there upon the earth. God promised Noah in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. This is known as the Noahic covenant, and it's found in Genesis 9, 8 through 17, all that God spoke to Noah about this in this covenant, but it's introduced to us here. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. Well, we'll read about that when we get to chapter 9. But the key to Noah's salvation, again, it's found in verse 22. 
Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Obedience was the key to Noah's salvation. Obedience was the key. Noah did all that God commanded him to do, so he did. What God commanded, he did. Regarding the dimensions of the ark, the ark itself, the Bible tells us, was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. And I'm going to go ahead and just look to Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis since his organization built an ark. And it's, if you get a chance to go down to Kentucky and see it, it's worth the trip. And even though Lily and I, a few years ago, maybe three years ago, we went down to see it. You know, one of the, besides the massive construction, and it was built by Amish, and they, Ken Ham, I actually heard him at a conference once talking about the Amish uh, looking at the blueprints, being in the board meeting, deciding. And uh, the Amish was a matter of their decision to build the ark so they looked at everything heard everything that they were planning to do went out and talked among themselves then came back in and said we will build your ark it was like we're going to do this for you so i guess if they decided not they would have went some other way but they were looking for men who were accustomed to working with hand tools and were accustomed to kind of the old trade of Time gone by. So I go to Kinham because they built this massive, I mean, it's a display down there in Kentucky. One of the things that stood out to me, I'll just tell you it, was uh, not only the size of it, but was reading one chart, I think on the second floor, that referred to global warming. And... Uh, out of the whole ARC exhibit, that's the one that got me because it showed a graph of the Earth temperature being hotter than it is right now at different times. And even at one point, the reason we have Greenland today is because the Earth heated up and the ice and snow melted and land appeared, and now there's a country there. That's one thing that just stood out. It's like, he was like, look, Lily, it's happened before. It's not the first time that we've had the heat up of the world. And in fact, you know, when I was, I've mentioned this before, but I used to live on the east side of our county, just within, within a mile of Lake Michigan. And I grew up at the foot of a, a bluff line. So our house was in a valley just below a bluff. Before we uh, moved out to Lake Villa, we lived in Winthrop Harbor, Lily and I, that bluff line was right behind our house. Our yard was mostly down below. Our house was on top, go out 30, 40 feet. We had a ramp that went all the way down. Much of our yard was down below in the bluff line. And uh, we were at Lincoln Park Zoo once, and I'm standing on the bluff line again, and this time I see a sign. And the sign says, this used to be the water level or the uh, boundary of Lake Michigan on the bluff line. It's like, really? That's like a mile away to the lake right now. And the water used to be right here, 
the water used to, I guess, like Michigan used to be right behind our house before our house was ever there many years ago. So there's been a lot of water at times. There's been the warm-up of the earth. So that was something that stood out to me. It has nothing to do with the ark. It was talking about global warming, but it was on the ark that I saw this, and it's worth seeing. So when you go visit, look for that. Noah's Ark, and this is Kinham. Noah's Ark was a massive ship built at God's command that saved Noah, his family, and two of every kind of land animal from the global flood that took place, even dated it, 4,350 years ago. The Ark was 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. So that would be like Five of our churches lined up straight in a row. Our church building, it's about 100 feet long. So five churches, uh, 85 feet wide, doubling the width of our church. That's 44 feet across, outside dimensions. So double the width, five times as long, and then, of course, 51 feet high. We would have to go up a couple of stories here on the church grounds. So rather large. Scripture does not elaborate about the shape of Noah's Ark. Beyond those superb overall proportions, length, breadth, and depth. Since the Bible gives proportions consistent with those of a true cargo ship, it makes sense that it would have looked and acted like a ship too. So once again, we find the world is in this place of a great population explosion where we see the lust and the corruption, the violence of mankind has brought us to a place where it could easily be said that every intent of man's heart is only evil continually, as we read tonight. No doubt God's heart is filled with sorrow and grief for our earth, just like it was in the days of Noah. Yet, thankfully, the Lord has sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who has now become the savior of the world. And for a season... God has given the earth time to repent before bringing judgment upon this earth. One final judgment, not by water, but by fire this time. But God is giving us a time of repentance. And it's my hope that each of us comes to that place, that we would be like Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, a grace that is only available today through God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 17:26 and 27, And as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. As it was during the flood so it will be in the day of the son of man when he is revealed when the lord comes at his second coming but only those for noah's day only those within the ark were saved for us only those who are in christ will be saved but for noah the key was obedience and we've already seen that in verse 22 Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did, Genesis 6:22. But we find out that obedience continued to be 
Noah's life in Genesis 7-5, the key verse. Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So once again, obedience is key. Genesis 7, 1 through 12, we read in verses 1 through 3 that after 120 years, God spoke to Noah saying, verse 1, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now Noah was not without sin, for the sin of Adam had been imputed upon him at the fall, just like it has for us. According to Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so Noah was not without sin, but he was found righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 9 tells us that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. He did according to all that God commanded him, verse 22, and so he did. So obedience was key. He was not a man who was without sin, but obedience was key in his relationship with God. At this time, it was after the fall, but before the law. So after the fall, but before God gave the law through Moses, which would come many years later. At this time, after the fall, but before the law, we find that walking in obedience to God was through the revealed word of God that God had given to man through oral tradition at that time. It was a way that men and women were made righteous before God. But since that time, God has given us further revelation. We have been given the law through Moses, but also we have further revelation through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 20 and 21 tells us, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, and where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Having received grace from God, Noah, his family, and the representatives of all the animals, the two of every kind went into the ark. So one of the questions, how did all those animals fit in the ark anyways? Well, to answer this question, we have to think of what critics have often said. They envisioned that there were millions and millions of animals overloading the ark. There is an exhibit down in the ark with Ken Ham, and they have all these storybooks of Noah's Ark, and almost all of them. Our kids had little Noah Ark toys and probably books as well, but they show like animals sticking out of this small boat everywhere like they could barely fit in type thing. But actually the Bible makes it clear that the cargo was limited to land-dwelling, air-breathing animals, And it would correspond to modern birds, mammals, reptiles. But it wasn't that he had to take every species, but that of every kind. We have a lot of different species. The answers in Genesis limits this down to 
saying that there were more, no more than 16,000 land animals and birds on the ark. Still sounds pretty crowded, but no more than 16,000. According to the Bible, the ark had three decks and floors, and they thought it through. When you go to the art exhibit, they think about how they would have fed the animals, how they would have got rid of the waste from the animals. I mean, they they have devised all these things of how this could actually work in caring for the animals, a living quarter for the humans, uh, places where the animals were at and kept. And it's saying that there was plenty of room. And then there again, they didn't have to take the largest animals. God could have brought them young, those who were coming to maturity, not that they were fully mature when they came on the ark, but maybe growing into maturity. Some have theorized, I've heard in times past, that like the bears and other animals who hibernate during the winter, that God perhaps caused them to go in this hibernation and to just kind of sleep during the trip. Again, we cannot rightly answer all these things. But according to the word of God, God used righteous Noah to save his generation. And the same God he used Noah also desires to use us to bring salvation of Christ to our generation. Again, obedience is key. Verses four through six, we discover that Noah did all that God commanded him. In verse 4, for after seven more days, God said, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So the first time that rain was mentioned in the Bible, we looked at this in Genesis chapter 2, where it just tells us at that point, the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth, for there was no man to till the ground. Genesis 2, 5, and 6. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So until there was a man to tend, until humanity came, it it seems that rain maybe came upon the earth prior to the flood. But rain is only mentioned now for the second time in Scripture that God said, There in verse 4, that I will cause it to rain 40 days and 40 nights. For a second time, we are told in verse 5 that Noah did all according that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when he entered the ark with his family and all the animals. And Noah's obedience, again, it's key with God. And it's also key in our relationship with Jesus. So two by two, they went in, verses 7 through 12. We learn of this. We read from verses 7 through 9. So Noah, with his sons, his wives, his son's wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth. And again, we talk about 16,000, everything that creeps on the earth, crickets, grasshoppers, um, spiders, everything. They went in two by two into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God commanded Noah. As Noah entered into the ark with his wife, sons, their wives, eight souls in all, he also brought into the ark male and female representatives 
of all the various kinds of animals, kinds of animals, seven of every clean animal, two of every unclean animal. And here we find something about clean versus unclean that was established with the law of Moses. And yet after the fall, but before the law, we find that clean and unclean animals are referenced here in the Bible. So God had taught Adam, taught through oral tradition, Enoch, who walked with God. He learned what God required of him. So as we have already learned in answers in Genesis, Noah did not need to take every variety of each of the different species of animals, just representatives of the species. He didn't need to bring every breed of dog, just needed two dogs to accomplish that. Then the breeding could happen afterwards. And so God may have also brought Noah, as I said, young, but winged animals that were ready to grow into maturity, could have helped to limit on that space. I once heard that preacher once say that, you know, there were dinosaurs on the ark as well, but they didn't take the big ones. They took little ones. Kind of smart about that. Don't take the giant ones. Take the young ones. However it might have been, while we may question how Noah could have rounded up all the different animals and birds, Verse 9, and also combined with Genesis 6.20, helps us understand this. Verse 9 says, as God commanded the animals, and then combined with Genesis 6.20, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. It seems to suggest that God supernaturally brought the animals that he intended to be upon the ark. The distinction between the clean and the unclean animals although later codified in the Mosaic law, was made known to Adam and passed on through oral tradition to his children. And there it was seven days later. The Bible tells us, verses 11 and 12, 600 year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and it rained on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. So two things took place on that day. You had water coming down and you had water coming up. All the fountains of the deep were broken up. So water came up and water came down from the heavens. So not just rain coming down, but water coming up from the deep. But once again, the obedience for Noah was key in his relationship with God. As the word of God tells us in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord, does he have delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of the rams. As it was for Noah, so it should be for you and me. Obedience is key. And finally, verses 13 through 24, we find the breath of life. In verse 22, the key of this section, key verse, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died. The breath of the spirit of life. 
So for Noah and his family and the animals that were with him on the ark, they were safely within the ark. The same day that he shut the door in the ark, God allowed the rain to come down. The waters of the deep were broken up. God likes to do same day things in scripture. The same day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of evil, uh, God cursed them, not cursing Adam and Eve, but cursed Eve with the childbearing Adam, cursing the ground for his sake, but took them out of the garden, put them out the same day. When Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness on that same day, God made a covenant with him to give his descendants the promised land, according to Genesis 15:18. One of the favorite same-day passages of mine comes when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and the Word of God tells us in Exodus 12:41 that on the same day that Israel entered into Egypt, they came out 430 years later on that very same day. These same-day passages reveal that God was and is in the timing of all things. And in a similar way, God was with Noah, his family, and all the animals as they entered into the ark. For on that very same day, verse 13 through 16, same day Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, every cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. They went into the ark to Noah two by two of all the flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Not only was the Lord in the timing of their entering into the ark, God shut the door. In other words, no matter the storms that would come upon the earth on the outside of that ark, because of their obedience to the Lord's command, their salvation was secure within the ark. And likewise, by the command of God, there is only one door that leads to life. As Thomas asked Jesus, how do we get to the Father? Jesus responding to Thomas in John 14, 5 and 6 saying, now Thomas saying to Jesus first, John 14, 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going or how we can know the way. And Jesus responding, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. For those who enter thereby through faith in Jesus Christ, they'll find that their salvation, our salvation is secure in him on the very same day that we enter into faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10:9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. But it's only through Jesus. For Noah, it was an ark. For us, it is our Savior, Jesus, that we find salvation. So the waters prevailed, verses 17 through 24. Verse 17 says, The flood was on the earth 40 days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And not only did God cause it to rain 
40 days and 40 nights, according to verse 11, the fountains of the deep were broken up. Waters came up from the earth. Waters came down from the heavens. And they prevailed upon the earth until the ark was lifted high above the earth, moved over the surface of the waters, high above the earth, as high as, I believe, I don't have it in my notes. I'll have to look real quick here in the word. It tells us of it that it prevailed exceedingly high, verse 19 of chapter 7, until all the high hills under the earth were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. So 15 cubits, a cubit about 18 inches. It's determined, I think, answers in Genesis made it a little longer, but from the length of a man's elbow to the tip of his finger, about 18 and a half inches. You can measure yours. I've measured mine before. So between 18 to 20, 21 inches, possibly. So feet above the earth. 2 Peter 3, 5 and 6 tells us, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and into water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. It's interesting that there are many extra-biblical evidences regarding the flood. There are actually flood legends around the whole world. But also, there are the fossil graveyards that are found on every continent, many of these on high elevations of mountains. In 1987, an article in the New York Times Amazing that we report something like this, the Times. Anyways, um, they've been not been known to be very truthful lately. 1987, the New York Times reported that scientists found the fossils of whales and other marine animals in the Andes Mountains and sediments of the Andes Mountain Range. And these similar evidences have been found in mountain ranges around the world. And the science says, evolutionists say that the earth heaved up, and that's where the mountains, that's why they're on the mountains. But what if the waters came over? What if science has it wrong and the earth didn't heave up? I believe both is actually true, that God, when he broke up the waters of the deep, there was this quaking of the earth that changed the face of the earth. But also the waters came over the hills, the high hills, the mountains. It could be rather, as it says in Scripture to us in verses 18 through 24, the waters prevailed exceedingly high on the earth. All the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Waters prevailed 15 cubits upward. And the mountains were covered until all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts. And every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died, just as the Bible says. Only Noah and those who were with him on the ark remained alive. And the waters remained upon the earth for 150 days. Verse 24. The Bible teaches us 
in Genesis 2-7 that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. In Daniel 5-23, King Belshazzar refused to glorify God who held his breath in his hand. Daniel 5.23, Belshazzar refused to glorify the God that held his very breath in his hand. We also learn in Job 33.4 that the breath of the Almighty gives us life. The breath of life, it's a gift of God. And sadly, the people before the flood abused that gift of life that was given to them. They lived after the lust of their own flesh. They had corruption and violence filling the earth. The people's destructive lifestyles brought God's judgment upon the world at that time, which cultivated in their death. The breath of life, though, continues to be a gift from God. Acts 17.25, Paul acknowledged God gives all life, breath, and all things. God gives it. And yet there's another breath that is necessary in order for us to breathe true life, eternal life. And that's the breath that has to come from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Shortly after he resurrected from the grave, John 20, 22 tells us that he came to his disciples. John 20, 22, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. They breathed salvation into his disciples. At this moment, new life was birthed into the disciples through the breath of of their Savior, Jesus, the in-breathing of the Holy Spirit into their hearts. And I believe the same thing happens when each of us accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life. We have to breathe in. We breathe, we have life. The gift of breath is from God, but there's a further breath that he wants to give to mankind. It comes through salvation. It's a breath once again, of the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Holy Spirit, as it was described here in Genesis chapter 7, when Jesus said to his disciples, receive the Holy Spirit, he breathed upon them. Have you received the breath of life that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ? On Wednesday evenings, we've been looking at the ABCs of salvation, where we learn that the A represents admit. We need to admit to God that we are sinners, and we have to ask for his forgiveness. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in 1 John 1.9, we learn that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to admit to God that we are sinners. We also need to believe, believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did the work of salvation, that work which we could not do. And so we must believe in the work that he did in our behalf. And finally, the sea it stands for confess, to confess our faith in Jesus Christ, make that commitment as we share our faith with others. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with confession, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That breath of life still necessary. We are given it the moment we are birthed upon this earth. But there is a further breath that the Lord desires for us to breathe in. And that is the breath of salvation that comes through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're listening through social media or through the radio tonight and you have questions regarding faith or prayer requests, please email us at cclv at comcast.net cclv at comcast.net I've already mentioned this coming Sunday. It's Father's Day. We're going to do a message that I entitled Quit You Like Men. Had to go to the King James, the old King James, to get that wording just like that. Quit You Like Men. And you're thinking, Pastor John, that doesn't even make sense. Well, hopefully we can make sense of it on Sunday And I look forward to being with you this coming Sunday at 10 a.m., either here at the church or via our social media or through radio. Also, if you desire to know more about our fellowship or desire to support our ministry, please go to cclv.org and you can find out information about our church. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening, for the teaching of your word, looking rather quickly through a couple of chapters here in Genesis, chapters 6 and 7. A lot of information, Lord, given to us here in these chapters. In these early chapters in the book of Genesis, Lord, they're so foundational for our faith. So help us, Lord, to not only learn from them, but to ponder them and study for ourselves that we might have a greater understanding of your truth. And we know, Lord, that you are truth. And it's through you, Christ, that you set us free. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring us to that place of freedom. I pray, Father, if there's anyone hearing my voice tonight or listening to this at a different time via a recording, and they have questions regarding faith, Lord, I pray that they'd reach out to us here at the church, reach out to someone they know who is a follower of Christ, that they would reach out to you in prayer, even this night. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.